Man, that's so good. You should be a little more fired up than that about that. I'm just saying. Like, I don't know everything, but I know that much. Man. Um, just so you know, the um, Jolene that she is referring to is this Jolene. Um, she asked me, she said, uh, she said, do you think I'll be able to keep from crying? And I said, no. <laughs> but here's the interesting thing about their story. And you're going to kind of hear part two next week, like, you know, Paul Harvey, uh, part two next week of that story. Um, but that story actually spans from the valley all the way down to Homer. Um, in fact, uh, one of her sisters down in Homer is part of Church on the Rock down there, where my good friend Aaron Weiser is pastoring. And um, I'll tell you what, as, as pastors, in particular, um, I would say campus pastors and my role as lead pastor, I get to hear these stories of radical transformation all the time. It, like it's happening all over the place. And what we've realized is that um, we need to be able to tell those stories more frequently so that you know what's happening. Because often you can end up in a place where you feel like there might not be any hope for your situation. And what this month really represents, the stand and this event that we come to every year as we go through this series, is it represents building circles of support for families in need. And so I love that in your story, right, that, that all of a sudden you feel this call from the Lord and like, nope, this is the way that I'm called to stand. Um, uh, for my wife and I, if you know our story at all, um, we've been able to adopt three little girls as infants um, over about a four-year period um, and uh, all through foster care. And God just radically transformed our family. Um, uh, foster care and adoption are not for the faint of heart, but I will tell you this, there is nothing that I have done in my life to date that has been more impactful more powerful and more transformative for me and my understanding of the gospel than that journey. In fact, you saw Connie's story last week, and Connie um, was taken in by Cody and Sophie Farrington. Cody grew up in the foster care system here in the state of Alaska, and so now he is looking around and he's asking, how would God want to put the lonely in families, and how could my family be that? And that's really what we're talking about, because I don't know if you know this, we can't all do the same thing, but everyone can do something. And that's what the stand is all about, is asking the question, what is it that God would have you do? How would he have you engage? I'm going to give you a warning. If you're going to read these stories on the wall, um, you should probably have a conversation with your spouse or something beforehand saying, are we willing to do this if God were to speak to us? I mean, the Heart Gallery, what they've really done is they've taken these kids who are about to age out of the system who do not have forever families yet, and they've taken these kids and they've told their story in a really powerful and beautiful way because you don't always get that opportunity for people to hear your story. And if you read these stories, just buckle up. Um, God might ask something that sounds insane of you, which is exactly what he did with Nehemiah. And that's why we're using the story of Nehemiah for this month as we look at the stand. Um, I just, I want to say this because last time I got to be here, which seems like a decade ago, um, last time I got to be here, you were in one service. Um, and I just want you to know, this is abnormal that a church in this community would be growing like this church is go growing. And what that really is attributed to is God putting the right people in the right seats on the bus. And would you just give it up for your pastor, Steve and Dee? I'm telling you. Um, 
unlike the rest of our pastoral staff, they aren't perfect, right? Um, but what they are is obedient to the Lord. And he's called them here in this season. And Tyson on this team, now that you don't have to run up to Talkeetna every night, you're able to stay down here and to be able to serve here. I'm just telling you, God has blessed this church. For me, um, I stepped back into the Wasilla campus, campus pastor role. I had been in just the lead pastor role for a season. And I just got to tell you, those people in Wasilla got lots of problems. Um, so I don't get to get out as much as I used to and visit our other campuses. So people like Jonathan Garland and Josh O'Donnell get to make their way around our other campuses. Hopefully, over time, I'm going to build up the um, capacity to be able to be out and be here and visit and those kinds of things more often. But I just want you to know it's a privilege, an honor, and I love being here. I love what God's doing here. And that John Aho guy, like <laughs> preaching it up last week for the very first time, I told him, I said, um, being a teacher, it does not translate directly to being a preacher. They are two very different environments. And I'll just tell you, I got to listen to it. Great job. Great job setting it up, the context, the culture, what was happening, and then pulling those truths out of Nehemiah. We're going to jump right in here um, to a segment I'm just going to refer to as proactive versus reactive. How many of you would love to hear directly from the Lord like Moses heard from the Lord? Anybody? (laughs) Really, three of you, because the Lord told me today that everyone who raises their hand, he will speak to them in that way. So, sucks to be the rest of you. Now, how many of you like to hear from the Lord in a really direct way, like they heard from the Lord in the Old Testament? He just shows up, he's going to write it on the wall, you can read it for yourself, or he's going to speak through a burning bush or an angelic visitation. Like, I've always thought if the Lord would just speak to me like that, things would be so much easier. Like, if he were to speak to me, I would just be obedient. Whatever he said do, I would do that thing. But I have a tendency to believe that we would actually be a lot like those people who he did speak in that way too. Like when he comes to Moses in the burning bush and it's not consumed and this voice comes out of it, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground and God is speaking directly to Moses and he tells Moses exactly what he wants him to do and Moses is like, you got it, I'm out of here. No, Moses is like, you got the wrong guy. He starts an argument with God and God is speaking directly to her. Or we'd be like Gideon, who had an angelic visitation. Here's what I want you to do. Really? I'm not sure that's really you. I mean, I know you're here and all, and I know we're having this conversation, but could I just put a fleece out before you? And then you make it wet, I'll know for sure it's you. So he comes out and it's wet. Okay, yeah, but it could have been for several. How about I put it out again and you make it dry? And then how about we test you one more time? I think we would be exactly like them. I actually think if God were to speak to us in the ways we think that he speaks to those in the Old Testament, that we would probably act just like they did. We would question God. We would think maybe he doesn't know all the details. I have a stuttering problem. I can't possibly be the one you want to go and speak to Pharaoh. Okay, I'll go and speak to Pharaoh, but I'm making a condition. You've got to send Aaron with me, right? If Aaron will come with me, then I'll go and speak to Pharaoh. And the reality is that I think we actually interact with God much in the same way they interacted with God when they heard from him. But I at least like to think that if God just spoke to me, if I heard his voice, if he showed up in the room, if I had an angelic visitation, he said, jump, I'd say, how high? I'd like to think I would respond in that way. In fact, um, uh, the Lord said, that phrase, the Lord said, appears over 300 times in the Old Testament alone. It just, it seems as though he's talking all the time. It shows up over 300 times in the Old Testament alone. You know how many times that phrase shows up, though, in the book of Nehemiah? 
zero. Not one time in the book of Nehemiah are we told that the Lord said anything to him. In fact, I love Nehemiah's story because I think Nehemiah interacted with God, came into alignment with God much in the way that almost all of us are called to. That it is the anomaly, the burning bush, the writing on the wall, those sorts of things. The vast majority of the people that you see in the scriptures, the overwhelming majority of people, almost the entire nation of Israel, hears from God through another person through his written commands, and they believe God is speaking to them. But in Nehemiah, not one time are we told, the Lord said, and I love this about Nehemiah, because Nehemiah isn't a guy who's waiting around for God to ask him to do something. Nehemiah asks God if he could do something. It's a very different approach to life. In fact, it's much like Henry Blackaby describes in his Experiencing God series, Uh, where he says, most of us spend all of our time um, waiting around for God to bless our thing, to ask God's blessing for what we're going to do, rather than asking God what he's already doing and joining him in it. It's a very different way to live. I I grew up in the Pentecostal charismatic movement, so just so you know, if you don't like shout amen every now and then, I assume that we haven't communicated, and I'll just keep going indefinitely. I can do that. Um, So feel free any moment, Ross, just to yell out a... Hallelujah. <laughs> Slap the stage. Come on now. And any of it. Um, I was just preaching down in Mississippi a couple of months ago, um, right on the border of Memphis and South Haven. They call it Memphisippi at a Pentecostal, like Southern Pentecostal church. They run up and slap the stage when you make a good point. So, you know, I'm just saying. Uh, Nehemiah is the guy who, um, I would say it this way, although he has not heard God speak to him, he does not assume that God is not sending him. In fact, he assumes that God must be in this mission because it's something that's very near and dear to the heart of God, that he must get involved somehow. And it's within reason that God has uniquely positioned him, gifted him, given him opportunity to be the solution to his own prayer. You ever prayed that way? I, I tell people frequently, I'm, I'm going to pray about that, right? And, and I really do. I try to pray about it. I usually like pray right then so I don't forget to pray about it and hope the Lord reminds me again later to pray about it. But what if I approached all of my prayers with the question in the back of my mind, could I be the answer to this prayer? Maybe I'm the solution to the problem. Maybe God actually placed me uniquely in this position at this time, in this season, with this favor, so that I could join him in bringing a solution to the problem. Nehemiah discovers there's a problem. In fact, my guess is when Nehemiah asked the question, how are things going back in Jerusalem and in Judah? He probably expected to get a positive answer. Because at this point, um, Ezra had gone back. At this point, Zerubbabel had gone back. Say that name 10 times fast. They had rebuilt the temple. So the temple was established, and that's the one thing they really wanted. And then Ezra is back there as a scribe who knows the law of God, and he's bringing civil order back to the people. I mean, it seems like things are going well, if I were just guessing, right? If there weren't no live cams back in Judah and Jerusalem to see what was actually going on. And so when his brother shows up with some friends, my guess is Nehemiah is asking a question, and it's within reason he expected a positive response, but he doesn't get one. How's it going back in Judah and Jerusalem? Oh, I'm so glad you asked because it ain't going good. 
Like, like the city is in disarray, and this is what they literally say to him. This is what piques his interest. The people are living in shame and disgrace. And that strikes Nehemiah. In fact, John brought this out last week. It's such a, a great point. Nehemiah doesn't just say one prayer about it. Nehemiah prays for a season about this thing. He's like, God, would you move? Could you do something? Could I join you in what you're doing? Remember your promises to us. Remember your covenant with us. And so he starts praying in the autumn, right before moose season in Israel. And he prays all the way through to the spring. And when the moment presents itself and he's before the king, he shoots for the moon. King, this is what needs to happen at risk to himself, to his occupation, possibly to his own life. He asks of the king something that he should not have expected the king to say yes to. King, here's what we need. We need lots of lumber. I need to build my own home there. I need um, letters from you. I need to have access to your lumber yard so we can get all the supplies that we need. Here's what I need if we're going to accomplish what needs to happen in Jerusalem. And God shows him crazy great favor. I think we ask for too little sometimes. We ask God for what we believe will be permissible versus what we believe is actually necessary to accomplish the mission that God has in front of us. So Nehemiah is moved, and he begins to move forward. Now, it's going to cost the king to let Nehemiah go. Nehemiah is a trusted individual in his court. Nehemiah is someone who has close access to the king, but it's going to cost the king in materials. It's going to cost the king in time. The king is going to send um, military personnel with Nehemiah so he has safety. It's going to cost the king to send Nehemiah back to rebuild the walls. But it's going to cost Nehemiah much to join God in what he's doing. And so this week, what we're looking at is we're looking at the cost of obedience. I I would say there's a difference between obedient and observant, though. Maybe you could use the illustration of um, you're at a restaurant, uh, you have a waiter or a waitress, um, and that individual, every time you ask for water, they bring water and they fill up your cup. And it's great. They do exactly what you ask them to do. They're on time. They do it in a timely manner. The water's nice and cold. But, but then there's another waiter or a waitress, and they see that you need water before you ever even get to ask for it, and they bring it, and they fill it up, and you never said a word. That's the difference between obedient and observant. And Nehemiah is more than obedient. Nehemiah is actually observant. He sees a need, and he says, maybe I'm the answer to my own prayer. What would it look like in the kingdom for us to look around at things like this wall, at needs in our own churches, at needs in our own communities, and ask the question, could I be the answer to my own prayer? Which brings me to tan stuffel. It's a very, very popular word. Actually, it's not a word at all. It's an acronym. How many of you know what it stands for? Anybody ever? Really? There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. It's a financial principle. In other words, um, uh, nothing is free in the world. You get a free lunch, the reality is somebody paid for that lunch. Things are always paid for. So you have a school program, you have free lunches for kids, but somebody's paying for those free lunches. The federal government's going to pay for those free lunches. And actually, the federal government doesn't pay for those free lunches. Who pays for those free lunches? 
I'm sorry, you, it's called taxes. Uh, the principle is basically this, that everything comes at a cost. The question is, who is paying the cost? There's no such thing as a free lunch. Either you pay for it or someone else does. And here's the thing, Nehemiah steps up and he says, I'm willing to incur the expense so that others could experience freedom. I'll pay it. I'll leave the comfort of my home. I'll leave my security of my job. I'll leave all of the things that I have here, and I will be the one who at expense to myself will go and provide safety and security for those in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is willing to incur it, and the reality is that he is going to personally pay a price in three primary ways. He's going to pay a price in what he experiences in what I call external attacks. He's going to pay a price in what we know as um, internal conflicts. And he's going to pay a price in personal sacrifices. I want to take a look at these three real quickly. External attacks. Nehemiah 4, starting in verse 1. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officials, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they are doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day just by offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Verse 6, at last the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites, and the Ashadites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. I'll tell you a secret. Anytime you join God in what he's doing, and you begin to see any measure of success, you can expect the Sambalots and the Tobias to show up, to tell you that you won't ultimately succeed, to tell you that you see that kid you invested in, they're off track again, they're running down the wrong road, to tell you that that church thing you're doing in Willow, that thing's never really going to work, that those days are done, people aren't going to show up, those people will always show up anytime you join God and what he's doing. And it really has nothing to do with you. It isn't about their hatred for you, it's actually an enemy whose hatred is for anything that reveals the glory of God in the world around us. In fact, Nehemiah's interest isn't actually in rebuilding the wall. His interest isn't actually in just providing safety and security for the people in Jerusalem. They could go freely worship at the temple. Nehemiah's ultimate goal, and he expresses it clearly in his prayer, is this, that the glory of God would be put on display through the people of God thriving in his presence. That's what his real interest is. That's a high and lofty goal, and that's actually why the enemy will resist you anytime you try and do something great. Anytime you begin to believe God for free, that's why I tell people, if you're going to share your story and we're going to put it on social media and we're going to play it at our campuses, anytime you're going to do that, be ready. The Sambalots and the Tobias are going to show up. They're going to show up. They're going to mock you. They're going to tell you you haven't really changed. They're going to tell you that you're still struggling with addiction. They're going to tell you that your marriage isn't perfect. Whose is? Right? Those people will always show up. 
In fact, as I think about what's happening here, literally in this building, if you don't know the history of this building, there's some things you need to know about why the enemy would not want this to thrive. This building is actually the place where um, Bill Pepper pastored years ago, and a young guy named David Pepper, a snot-nosed kid, was running around in this building, going to youth group in this building. This, this place represents, Willow represents, a place where a vision for the Matsu Valley and Church on the Rock was given birth to. And now God is working at redeeming that story rebuilding something that the enemy said it'll never thrive again. It'll never flourish again. I I can remember Bill telling me stories, you know, if if you're a preacher, the numbers are always huge. He said, you know, every Sunday we had 10,000 people in this room. They showed up from Anchorage and it was like 150, 160 people showing up to worship God. I'm just telling you, God's on the move. Again, he's far from finished because there are people who are far from him. He's at work, but there will be people who will tell you, nope, never happen again. Those days are done. Those people are gone. That season is over, and it isn't. Do not listen to the naysayers and the nincompoops. They have no idea what they're talking about when it comes to God's movement. External attacks, you can expect them the first time you step up to preach on a Sunday or you say yes to pastoral ministry in a community. It will come. Just don't worry about it because it isn't actually about you. It's about the glory of God being revealed. The second thing is internal conflicts. Now, I know it's not true here, but you need to know this. Every other church in America has internal conflicts, except for this one. This one I've heard from Ross and Lois is perfect with zero challenges whatsoever. In the South, you always knew um, if there were internal conflicts in the church. We had a saying, um, it was, uh, bless your little heart, which meant, I can't help that you're an idiot. Like that's, that's a little, but we never really said it to the individual because everyone else knew exactly what it meant, but we'd say it to one another. You'd describe some thing that somebody in the church did, and you'd be like, oh, bless their little heart. It wasn't like like really bless their heart. It was like bless your heart for having to be around their heart. But you always knew when you came into church who was offended with one another because they would sit on separate sides of the room, right? No, I'm just I have no idea. They sit on separate sides of the room because I, I got to love them, but I don't have to like them. We can be in the same room together. But listen, internal conflicts will arise. Anytime you put people together, there will be internal conflicts conflict. Listen to what happens with Nehemiah if you think things get bad around here. Nehemiah 5 verse 1, about this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. They were saying, we have such large families, we need more food to survive. Others said, we have mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. And others said, we have had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs. Yet we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We have already sold some of our daughters, and we are helpless to do anything about it, for our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. Nehemiah says, when I heard their complaints, I was very angry. There's a sense of righteous indignation that rises up in a pastor when they hear about injustice, when they hear about conflict, when they hear about things going on in the body of Christ that we are unwilling to resolve. Listen, 
internal conflicts will arise. Every church has them. But what defines a healthy church versus an unhealthy church is how we handle those conflicts. It's why when I came and took this position in a season of massive transition for our church, one of the things that we laid down out of the gate is Matthew 18 is how we're going to approach conflict. If you're not willing to go and have a conversation with that individual uh, to express what you feel, how things are going, what you've seen, what the offense is, if you're not willing to do that, then we can't move forward because it's the first step in Matthew 18. And once you do that, if that doesn't go well, then you can invite a third party not to be on your team. You can invite a third party to show up and hear what both of you are saying and then describe it back to you. And if that doesn't work, then we can get the elders involved. But the reality is that the majority of people are unwilling to do step one. And yet, 90% of the time, conflicts are resolved in that first conversation. If I was just willing to sit down and look you in the eye, hear your affection for me, express mine for you, and we resolve this thing together. Internal conflicts will arise. What matters is how we handle them. And the truth is, if you choose to be in leadership in any way, shape, or form, you may not be able to fix everything. In fact, if you believe you can, you're probably trying to play God. You may not be able to fix everything, but you also cannot ignore those things. Mm, that's a good word, Pastor. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's the second time I preached it to myself. Thank you, Ross. <laughs> so out of character for Ross. I love it. <laughs> Oh, man. Um, external, external attacks, internal conflicts, and then the third one, personal sacrifices. What Nehemiah recognizes is that if he's going to step into this, it's going to cost him personally, and he's willing to pay that price. In chapter 5, listen to his description of the cost to him personally. For the entire 12 years that I was governor of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of the reign of Artaxerxes, neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. Verse 16, I also devoted myself to working on the wall and refused to acquire any land. And I required all my servants to spend time working on the wall. I asked for nothing, even though I regularly fed 150 Jewish officials at my table. Besides all the visitors from other lands, the provisions I paid for each day included one ox, six choice sheep or goats, and a large number of poultry. And every 10 days, we needed a large supply of all kinds of wine. Yet I refused to claim the governor's food allowance because the people already carried a heavy burden. I want to tell you, in pastoral ministry, if you are not willing to personally sacrifice, you should never step into pastoral ministry. Nehemiah isn't expressing this because he wants anything from the people. In fact, he will end this little description with, the Lord knows all of it. That's his business. He'll, he'll take care of it. But here's how I would say it. Nehemiah does not exact from the people anything that he does not expect of himself. Nehemiah does not exact from the people anything that he does not expect of himself. 
If they're going to be working, I'm going to be working. If they're going to be working, my servants are going to be working. If they don't have food, I don't have food. If I need to take the provisions I have and share them with others, I will take the provisions I have and share them with others. Uh, Listen, the fact that you are in it together is critical to future success. But here's what I've discovered over the years. I'm willing to make sacrifices in my life if the value proposition makes sense to me. You know why I haven't been going to the gym, even though I actually have two memberships now? I know, it's terrible. One's really cheap, though. Even though I have, because it hasn't clicked for me. And then you have a cardiac event, and all of a sudden the value proposition increases dramatically. Yes, I will trade this for that right now, but it's all about what I actually value. If I spend this, I will get that. Now, If you've convinced your spouse um, that your hunting efforts and the amount of money that you spend on those hunting efforts um, is actually producing free meat for you, if that's the value proposition that you've been pitching, you should leave the room now because I'm going to let the cat out of the bag if you haven't figured it out yet. And you probably think she hasn't figured it out yet, but I promise you she already figured it out. She's good at mathing. <laughs> and, and the truth of the matter is, is this, that if you just took, uh, you said, um, I'm going to buy a $12,000 wheeler, which by the way is an used side-by-side now. I have a friend texted me last night. He just sold an used side-by-side for $41,000. Yeah, $41,000. But but let's just say you buy a $12,000 side-by-side, a $2,000 rifle and scope. The same friend sent me a text this morning. He said, you got to watch this video. I just got this $6,500 scope because the animal is so much more accurately dead with that scope than it was with your old scope. Like... But let's just go with a $2,000 rifle and scope and a $3,000 Arctic oven uh, tent because, well, you want to be comfortable. I mean, let's admit it. A $3,000 meat wagon and $4,000 in Kuyu gear or Sitka gear. I mean, you just do that. It doesn't take long at all before you're at $25,000. And if you at the current market price for beef brisket grade A at Three Bears right now, at the current market price, you could buy 4,750 pounds of meat and do whatever you want with it. Feed it to your sled dogs. Nobody cares. That's for, for six and a half years, that is two pounds of meat every day in your freezer. I'm just telling you, the math doesn't work. If you're telling your, your spouse, I'm hunting for the meat, you need to admit it. Just to, now, now, here's the difference. I'm actually not hunting for meat. You know what I go hunting for? Memories. That's why I go. In fact, I have some pictures Uh, My son, Caleb, who's living down in Homer now, and he's married, and they're about to have a baby, but I made the decision several years ago because I'd never even owned a four-wheeler, and I'm like, I got to get out. I got got to do some stuff with this. And this was the value proposition. This amount of money, whatever it ends up being, this amount of money is worth the memories and the experiences with my son. Now, you may disagree. It may not be the same value proposition for you, but I can just tell you it became valuable to me to be able and get out and do some things, not because of the meat, but because of the memories that my son and I were able to build together. Now my daughter, my oldest daughter, is ready. She's like, I'm ready to go kill my first animal, which I'm super excited about because for the longest time she didn't want to kill any animals. Um, and, and you know what she wants? She wants to shoot a moose with her bow. That's the first thing that she wants to do. I'm like, yes. She's part Alaskan native. We can hunt on tribal lands. I'm so excited about this. Um, I've been waiting for years. Um, anyways, the reality is that now, if, if it is worth it, then I will make 
the necessary sacrifices. In fact, there's a young man in Mark chapter 10 who comes up to Jesus and his disciples, and the man has a very um, direct question. Hey, good teacher, what, what must a man do to inherit eternal life? Like, like people have been looking for eternal life since the creation of the world. Like, how could I get my hands on eternal life? And, and Jesus says, well, man, if you obey the commandments, right? If you, if you keep all the commands, the law of Moses. And the guy says, oh, I've done all of that. Since my youth, I have kept all of the commandments. And Jesus doesn't argue with him at all about this because the man isn't saying, I've been perfect. I've kept all of the Ten Commandments. What the man is really saying is he's saying, I've kept all of the commandments, and in those moments when I didn't keep a commandment, then I kept the law and made the sacrifice necessary. He's just saying, listen, I've obeyed the law. That's what I've done. I've spent my life doing that. And Jesus doesn't argue that point with him at all. Teacher of the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. And looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. Did you hear the value proposition? I think for most of my life, all I heard Jesus say in this passage is, Sell everything you have and give the money to the poor and come and follow me. But he says, sell everything you have, give the money to the poor, and you will receive treasure in heaven that exceeds your wildest expectations and eternal life to boot. I'm answering your question about eternal life. And the man looks at it and he says, that is not worth this. He comes to the conclusion that all of his possessions are not actually worth giving up to inherit eternal life. It's a really frustrating passage because like one chapter later, Jesus encounters a man named um, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He had climbed up in a sycamore tree, his Savior, for to see. And Zacchaeus is up in the tree, and Jesus comes along. He says, Zacchaeus, get down here. We're going to your house. I'm going to have supper with you. And they go to the house, and Zacchaeus wants the exact same thing, eternal life. But instead of having to be asked to give up his possessions, Zacchaeus freely offers them. He says to the Lord, I'll give away half of my possessions and anyone I've robbed, I'll pay back threefold, fourfold, I'll pay them back. And Jesus says to Zacchaeus, salvation, eternal life has come to this house today. And I thought, why does Zacchaeus get the half price deal and the rich young guy has the full price deal? What if Jesus had said to this guy, hey, if you give up half of your possessions, then you can have eternal life. That's what Zacchaeus got away with. But the reality is this, what Jesus is putting his finger on is a value proposition. Zacchaeus would have given all his stuff away. He freely offers it. All God was interested in was Zacchaeus's heart. All he was interested in was the rich young ruler's heart. That's what he was actually after. And he knew the pathway to his heart was all of his stuff. And in that moment, the value proposition is revealed. That it isn't worth this. Now, there's a guy named Peter who's listening to this whole conversation. 
We, we give Peter a hard time because we say that Peter's kind of the guy who's always sticking his foot in his mouth. He's saying things that he shouldn't say. But the reality is Peter is frequently saying what everyone else is already thinking. He's that guy. And they're all like, I was hoping somebody would ask that. And I'm glad you're the idiot who did. Right? And, and so, so Peter here's this whole conversation about how it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom and giving up everything that you have. And in Mark chapter 10, verse uh, 28, here's what Peter has to say. Then Peter began to speak up, and everybody else is like, oh, this is going to be good. Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you. We've given up everything to follow you. You know what Peter's literally saying right here? Jesus we gave up everything, just like you told that guy to give up everything. He's asking the Lord, what do we get out of this deal? Which seems like a question, at least for me growing up in the church, you should never, ever ask. Like, this is the moment when God's going to drop the hammer. What do you mean, what do you, I'm God. Like, I'm the sovereign God of all the universe. I created everything. What, you think it's some big sacrifice for you to give up everything and follow me? Like, the Lord, it seems like the Lord should rebuke Peter in this moment for asking for stuff in exchange for giving everything up, but he doesn't. What, what the Lord actually does is he reveals that you and I are intended to be thinking about the value proposition, to be thinking about the exchange. Here's what he says. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property along with persecution. Here's what he's saying, just to, because some of you are like, oh no, I don't want more sisters. Have you met my sister? But here's, here's what he's really saying. He's saying, listen, you're going to be taken into a family that is global, that is larger than the wildest thing you could imagine. In the church, we used to refer to each other as brother and sister, right? And then it started to feel a little cultic, and so we quit doing that so much. But, but we really, fundamentally, that's what the kingdom is. And all of a sudden, when you join the family of God, that is expanded beyond your wildest imagination. Listen, you made, you made a good trade. If all those people reject you, you're being brought into a family that is much, much larger. But, but there's also going to be persecution in this life. And then he goes on, he says this, and in the world to come, that person will inherit eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Here's what Jesus is literally saying to Peter. Peter, you made a good trade. You've traded something that's going to go away anyways for something that can never go away. Peter, you made a good trade. You made a good trade now, and it's also going to be a good trade in eternity. And Peter, you've placed your value in the right place. Have you ever uh, bought something off of Craigslist? It's like a whole bunch of people are bidding on this thing. If I don't get this truck right now, if I don't get this four-wheeler right now, I'm going to lose it. And so you pay the money for it, but then on the way there to see what you've actually purchased... On your way there, you think to yourself, what if those pictures were 10 years old? 
What if a teenager's had it this whole time and they have rallied that machine and you're like, what am I going to show up and see that I've actually already purchased? And you get there and the thing actually exceeds your expectations. Like granny owned it and she's got three miles on it and that was driving to the end of the driveway to get her mail. And it's just like in pristine. Can you ever had that experience? Like this is what the Lord is telling Peter. Peter, this is going to exceed your wildest expectations. I'm telling you, you can't even see now how good of a deal you got by giving up everything here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. I'm going to invite you to stand with me, invite the worship team to come. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? There's a reason that people like Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and people like Peter and James and John, who would be beheaded for his faith, and Paul and Stephen, these people would take beatings and they would experience death. There's a reason they were willing to pay the ultimate price, and it's because they understood the value proposition. In fact, one of my favorite passages in all of the scriptures is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul is writing and he's describing his struggles and his trials. And I don't know if you know this, but Paul had some struggles. Like the, the dude was beaten and left for dead multiple times. How many of you have been beaten and left for dead because you were preaching the message of the gospel at school, at the workplace? Uh, nobody? Okay. This was routine uh, for Paul. He's experienced this multiple times. And listen to what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day for our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen, for the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things that we cannot see will last forever. Jesus, I would ask um, in these next few moments as we lift our voices, that you would give us eyes to see what you have offered, that you willingly lay down your life. The value proposition for you was that we might come into relationship with the God of all the universe, 
that our sins could be forgiven, that we could be an unfettered, unhindered relationship with you. And in that relationship with you, your glory would be put on display through your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your gentleness and your justice, all of it. So I ask, as you invite us, like you invited Nehemiah, like you invited Paul, like you invited so many others before us to join you in what you're doing in the world, would we consider deeply the cost? And would we understand that the value of what has been offered exceeds beyond our wildest calculations anything that we would lay hold of here and now. And may your kingdom come and your will be done in Willow, in the valley, in Alaska, on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.